0: This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Coligard. Learn more at exactsciences.com.
1: Well, I hope you're not tired of hearing yet about how Wisconsin will be an electoral battleground in 2020. Um, because if you are, you might need to find a new podcast. I'm Jesse O'Poyan, and this is Wedge Issues, a Cap Times podcast about state government and politics in Wisconsin. This week, I am bringing you another conversation from last month's Cap Times Idea Fest. Joining me for a conversation about what to expect from voters and campaigns in 2020 was Charles Franklin, the director of the Marquette University Law School poll and a friend of the Wedge Issues podcast
0: this is a long haul. We're in the middle of the second inning, and it's a long ways to the bottom of the ninth. And you could even make the argument that we're playing a doubleheader.
1: Craig Gilbert, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel's Washington bureau chief.
0: And even though there are fewer swing voters
2: today than there used to be, um, in a state that's being decided by a fraction, uh, there's plenty.
1: Angela Lang, the executive director of Block or Black Leaders Organizing for Communities. I
3: feel that there's a a strong level of engagement um, right now that I didn't see leading up to the 2016 election. Even a couple months out, there was not the buzz, there was not the conversations.
1: And Nathan Conrad, director of advocacy with Platform Communications.
4: I think a lot of it comes down to, especially on the Democrat side of the aisle right now, um, it isn't necessarily who that candidate is, but it is exactly how are they gonna speak to a larger coalition of voters and be able to bring as many people under their own umbrella as they possibly can.
1: From the left, the right, and the center, we talked about all the ways Wisconsin will be in play in the coming year. So to start us off, and, and you guys, I just want you to, you know, jump in anytime, talk over each other, just be nice. <laughs> start any fights on the end over there. <laughs> we're good. All right, we'll be all right. Okay, no, we're good. Uh S- simple sort of philosophical question about the state of Wisconsin. Is Wisconsin still uh, a purple state? Does it even matter to think about the state in this sort of red-blue-purple trend anymore?
2: I don't see how you can think of it in any other terms, really. Uh, I mean, in fact, I've you know having done this a long time, as was pointed out, there have been lots of moments uh, after big victories for one side or the other where you'll read kind of a spate of stories about how is Wisconsin now a blue state? Is Wisconsin now a red state? And uh, you know what happens? It keeps swinging back. And so I just don't know how it could be any more um, swingy and competitive and, and on a knife's edge um, when you have three of the last five presidential campaigns decided by less than a point. Uh, and when you've had, you know, the swings we've had at the state level, um, there's been a lot of trends under the surface where certain parts of the state are not purple or were red and are now blue or vice versa, but the net effect of all that has been that it's kind of washed out, and, and for one reason or another, these trends have sort of canceled each other out, and, and we're still in some ways as competitive as ever at the statewide level.
3: I think um, something too. I remember in two thousand, I believe it was two thousand eight. They were doing these different concerts all across the country, and one of them was the Beastie Boys, and they were targeting different um, youth voters at the time. And I remember it was my first election, and they were like, "Well, they're coming to Wisconsin because Wisconsin is a swing state." And I remember feeling like I didn't understand it being a swing state at that time, Um, and so I think a lot of it also does come down to turnout, and that if it wasn't a swing state, people just assume if there's no level of engagement in Milwaukee or in the black community, then um, we could just account on certain votes. And I think 2016 really proved that. Um, So it depends on, I think, the certain level of engagement, which also I kind of of think like leads it to swing one way or another. And also just like the margin, as we talked about.
0: I would add just one little thing that um, in our polling data, the state has become more evenly balanced, not less. We've gone from Democrats, in our data, being about 30 or 31 percent of the electorate, Republicans about 27, maybe 28, to now it's 30 or 31 for each party. There has been a growth on the Republican side, uh, not much decline, if any, on the Democratic side, but to a more equal balance, not a less equal balance. A lot of that change comes from white non-college men who've gone from plus 5 Republican to now plus 18 Republican, and that's a pretty sizable voting chunk of the population. Craig already mentioned the shuffling that some areas or groups are moving in one direction and others in a counterbalancing direction, but it means that we are as competitive, if not in fact more competitive, in terms of the balance of partisanship, than we've been since the Marquette poll began in 2012, which is how far back my data go.
4: I mean, and to add on to that too, I would say you look—you can just look back at the last five years of, of cycles that have happened through here. It's, uh, it's always one way or the other, one way or the other. Somebody gets ahead and all of a sudden the other side picks up their ground game or does something a little bit different to try and ground, grab in some extra seats either in the Assembly or in the, or in the State Senate, uh, or you can look at even the nonpartisan races where you start to see them become very partisan races very early on, and then that increases the, uh, the ability for there to be this purple discussion in the state of Wisconsin.
1: So we, so we are focusing on 2020. That is what I, we promised with the panel title. But <laughs> um, there are other elections coming up first, and I think the ones that a lot of people um, who are following politics right now in Wisconsin are focused on are these two congressional seats that are about to open up, the, the fifth and the seventh, both Republican seats right now. Are either of them up for grabs?
4: No. <laughs> you have my, to say that. My personal opinion, I, I think, yes, they are for grabs. There's going to be a lot of primary activity going on. And I think uh, there's a pretty, at least on the Republican side of the, of the ballot, there's a, there's a pretty deep bench in both the 5th and the 7th with people who are interested in those seats. Uh, the way I look at it is that there, due to the uh, immense amount of grassroots efforts that both uh, Congressman Sensenbrenner and Congressman Duffy put um, in over the years, you see really robust... Um, grassroots activism in both of those seats. And I do not think at this point in time that the those deep red seats are going to switch over to the other side.
2: I mean one interesting thing about those two seats is they've they've been not to overstate it, but they've been moving in slightly different directions in the sense that there are parts of Congressman Sensenbrenner's district, which was always the most Republican district in Wisconsin in the, you know, with the Wow counties. Um, that some of those communities have gotten less Republican, but it's still a very Republican district. Trump won it by almost 20 points. Um, and then Sean Duffy's district used to be one of, the, one of the absolute 50-50 House districts in the country when Dave Obey represented it, and unusually so for a pretty rural district. And then the funny thing happened after the 2010 election when you had the redistricting, the one district, the district that was like the most gerrymandered was Sean Duffy's district as they carved out these three democratic cities and like surgically attached them to Ron Kine's district and the net effect was to make Sean Duffy's district better for Sean Duffy in his first re-election campaign but they also made Ron Kine's district safer which is also kind of a 50/50 district safer for Democrats if they had to do it over again I think Republicans would probably not do that because Sean Duffy's district has become more Republican by itself even without the redistricting and so it's that rural trend that rural Republican trend very tough lift for Democrats uh, in what used to be a, a competitive district.
1: So in order to, to talk about 2020, we have to look back to elections past um, and, and relitigate 2016 a little bit. Uh, and you all ab- observed it and were involved in it from different angles. So just like 30,000 foot question, why did Donald Trump win Wisconsin? This was the first time a Republican won the presidential election. Uh, race in Wisconsin in more than 30 years, what happened?
4: <laughs> I'll, I'll
3: start. Um, <laughs> because it actually is part of the reason why, like, my organization started the way it did. Um, I think a, a big part of it, so I'm born and raised in Milwaukee and, and do the bulk of my work in Milwaukee, although we're looking into other areas as well. Um, I... I think people took for granted the black votes. Um, I think that's one part of it. I think people thought that, people would just naturally just show up. Um, I think some people also didn't take um, Donald Trump seriously as a president. And so people were like, well, it's not going to happen. People just automatically assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And so I think um, campaigns, um, you know, the candidate herself did not step foot in the state. There was not a real level of engagement. And I think a big lesson that we learned is that you can't take any vote for granted. You can't leave any votes on the table. And specifically people of color and and the black community in Milwaukee as a whole, needs to be engaged the same way we would engage millennials or college voters or white men or whoever, whatever demographic we're looking to cater to. We can't make assumptions about different demographics. And I think there was some messaging, too, and and people talk about voter suppression or people talk about – some of the messaging and the the rhetoric that was coming out of um the the trump campaign of well you know might as well vote for for me what have what has democrats done for for the black community and i think there are times that folks felt like they were struggling the black community working class folks women as people felt that they were struggling and people didn't feel very strongly about particular candidates and maybe felt like you know what I don't necessarily need to be engaged. My issues aren't necessarily being talked about. I'm not being talked to. And so people didn't feel very strongly, I think, to actually move to action and to, to carve out time and, and to vote. And people, if people aren't engaged, people are going to stay home.
4: I'd absolutely echo that point. I think that there wasn't just there was a lot of passion behind Hillary Clinton's campaign in the state of Wisconsin. The fact that she didn't show up here did put people off. I don't think they came out to the ballot box as often as, uh, as, as you've seen in the past. I mean, if you look at the the vote totals from from 12 in comparison to to 16, both Mitt Romney and President Obama had more votes than either of the two candidates in 16. I think what that does now is engage people for 2020, at least at the party level on both sides, to go after absolutely every single person that they can target and get out to vote. And I think 16, you're going to see a tremendous increase in the ground game from both sides of the aisle uh, to getting to every single door that they can. You're gonna see more knockers. You're gonna see more phone calls. You're gonna see more people finding new ways to get in touch with, uh, with their voters. And that's from rural to big city, to wherever you look across the board. There's going to be a lot of interactivity with with the voter, to the point where people are going to get sick of it, just like they did (laughs) in 16, (laughs) just like they did in 12, just like they did in 8. When you get too many phone calls or you get too many pieces of mail, but at the end of the day, it's that engagement that's going to drive the, the process in 20.
0: I will add a couple of things to play off of both of your comments, actually. One is to say that we did see an overall drop in turnout in 16 compared to 12 by a little under 90,000 votes statewide out of just about 3 million cast. But we're a very high turnout state, so to see a drop was a little bit of a surprise. The other was an unusually high third party vote of something pushing 5% total when we normally average about 1% total. And then finally, the uh, negative views of both candidates. About 20% of the electorate in exit polls had a negative view of both Trump and Clinton, but 75% of those people voted for Donald Trump. And so this was an unusual circumstance with two candidates who were far more negatively perceived by the public in Wisconsin as well as nationally than any presidential candidate since we started measuring favorability of candidates in the early 1970s. Uh, And so it's a very unusual circumstance that way as well. Uh, And you saw it in this proclivity to third parties, the modest but still noticeable drop off in turnout. Um, And I agree that neither party is going to make that mistake in terms of uh, ignoring the state. Uh, I think the open question is how much additional mobilization is possible and among what groups of voters. How big is the reservoir of non-voters who can be mobilized and moved out and do they live in those increasingly Republican areas of the northern part, northern and western state, part of the state, the rural areas, uh, which are thinly populated but together make up about 24 percent of registered voters in the state. So it's far from a trivial share of the vote. And at the same time in the southeast, uh, some shift in a less Republican uh, margin in uh, the Milwaukee suburbs, the Wow counties, still being won by Republicans, by good margins, but by smaller margins than in the past. And that was true not just for Trump in 16 compared to Romney, but it was also true for Scott Walker in an area that had been one of his real strongholds. And it showed up a little bit in the Supreme Court race last spring as well. So there are shifts that are taking place but can you turn out the folks, and do we see these sorts of trends, and can they compensate by not only having bigger turnout in the rural areas, but also a bigger margin? That seems to be one of the strategies there, but also what's happening in the Southeast, and and also in the Democratic strongholds, really turning out the vote in Milwaukee and Dane, and also Rock County is another uh, important bastion of uh, net Democratic votes.
2: So my takeaway from the map is that Yes, um Hillary Clinton underperformed in Milwaukee certainly compared to Barack Obama. On the other hand, Donald Trump underperformed in the Republican suburbs of Milwaukee compared to Mitt Romney. And those two things kind of canceled each other out. The real the real the real drama to me of the map um and and the explanation for most of the swing from 2012 when Democrats won a 7-point race to 2016, when Democrats lost a seven-tenth of a point race, most of that swing occurred outside of southern Wisconsin. It occurred in central Wisconsin. It occurred in northern Wisconsin. It occurred in western Wisconsin. It occurred in lots of small communities, including 540 communities that voted for Obama in 2012 and voted for Trump in 2016. That's where the big shift occurred, and so to me, part, along with what happens in Milwaukee and what happens in the Wow counties, we know Madison is gonna turn out, that's not so much of a drama, <laughs> but the real drama to me is how much of that swing to Trump, which was obviously partly, or, or a lot, um, a rejection of Hillary Clinton, how much of that swing was um, uh, vote for change, vote against Hillary Clinton, and how much of it was migrating toward Donald Trump and the Republican party, and Probably the answer is going to vary depending on what part of the state you're talking about. Um, I think you're going to see some of these small communities in in western Wisconsin, and southwestern Wisconsin, swing back. But you're going to see others in northern Wisconsin keep going in the same red direction. Um, But that was, in historic terms, that was the biggest difference. um, The real kind of deviation from historical patterns in Wisconsin was what happened in those communities, rural communities.
1: So, in the election since 2016, both parties kind of have a, a couple of victories to point to um, state level races, court races, legislative races. Is the momentum in either party's favor uh, at, at the sort of this moment right now?
0: I mean, I think that um, if 2016 was a wake up for Democrats that energized them for 18, I think the narrow loss for Walker in 18 had the same but opposite effect in energizing some republican turnout in the supreme court race in the spring there are other things as well and it's a low turnout race but i do think that pendulum swings both ways and is part of it in our polling data though when we ask people if they're paying close attention to politics the answer is as high today as it normally is in october of an election year now you mentioned the barrage of efforts we're going to see, and it's possible we'll run into some fatigue over elections. And that'll be an interesting thing to, how do you deal with that? But it is a stunning level of political, professed at least, political engagement right now.
3: I think um, that's something I've been thinking about lately, is that I feel that there's a a strong level of engagement um, right now that I didn't see leading up to the 2016 election. Even a couple months out, there was not the buzz. There was not the conversations. Um, I was at a watch party for the the Democratic debate the other night, and I was encouraged to see people there. Um, it was there was more people on a like, Thursday night than I would have expected watching a three-hour debate. Um, and so I, I'm encouraged by the fact that there are more people paying attention. I think people are trying to figure out who their candidates are, who their favorites are. Uh, with a crowded primary, people are able to drill down into issues that they care about. We're able to kind of um, kind of maneuver some of the, the more nuanced conversations that we weren't really able to get into. I think in 2016, um, you had Bernie, you had Hillary, and you were on one side or you are on another, there's a lot more similarities, I believe, in, the, in this current primary. And I think it's leading people to be engaged and to have more robust conversations. And so I'm encouraged by it. But I also see, um, you know, we see how we kind of started this conversation about Wisconsin being purple. We see how one Supreme Court race went one way and then we saw what happened this year. And so we see this pendulum kind of swinging um, back and forth. And so I think it's going to come down to turnout, but I do believe that um, people are going to get creative with their efforts. There's always a, a bigger push with digital and people trying to find different ways to communicate to voters. There's a lot of conversation of are we communicating with non voters? How are we turning non voters into voters? All sorts of different things. And although I am, I am encouraged that we're having these conversations earlier, um, I do have concerns about voter fatigue, even in, in local legislative races. Um, I remember in 2014, uh, there was a specific um, assembly race in the district that I live in, and I was tired of it. I was like, please stop. I'm done with this. Like, I'm, I'm done with the primary. I'm voting for for my person I told all the candidates who I'm voting for I was like please stop and I'm one of the more regular voters um and I was annoyed and so I can only imagine uh what that ends up looking like in trying to figure out what both parties are going to do to keep people engaged but also not to burn people out too
4: well especially we've I mean, got 14 months to go it's a it's yeah. a long time oh, and to my. be disengaged now uh and then to see kind of that that level of the the opportunity for fatigue is is out there but I think that both parties are going to be spending a lot of time trying to engage in a way that isn't going to necessarily... Uh, become that that please stop, yeah. <laughs> please stop moment that you have. Um, I think we'll see that, but I also think back. We can look historically at the state when we've had election after election after election after election, and we didn't see fatigue or, or turnout change too much. I think uh, I think all of the recall elections that that went on and then turned into the rest of the twelve cycle, um, you didn't see a drop off in people not being engaged. I think one of the greatest things about the state of Wisconsin is that on both sides of the of the aisle, you have immense passion at at, at the very lowest level of elected official all the way up to the presidential office and you also have an engaged electorate that knows what they're talking about and knows what they want to vote about and talk about with their elected officials you don't see that in a lot of other uh, a lot of other states in, in my opinion i've lived in a <laughs> in a number of them uh, and i've and i've always been impressed that you can have a really robust conversation with just about anybody when you talk about politics in this state you've got a lot of opinions and you've got a lot of people who are very vested in 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 their decision making process and want to talk to their friends and neighbors about that i just think it it, it's it's something that is it part of the reason that it makes wisconsin so special for the 2020 election and the tipping point that that craig was talking about is that everybody has an opportunity to really make their voice heard and then talk to their friends and neighbors and, and, and and you know focus on adjusting change if they see that to be the need
2: so I keep thinking back to 2004. Um, it was a really bitter election. Uh, incumbent Republican president. There was a war going on. Uh, you also had the aftermath of the 2000, disputed 2000 election. And Wisconsin ended up being like a top four or five state. It was actually the top Republican target, the top Democratic target, the state that had been voting Democratic by the Bush campaign. I don't know if you remember that during the last 10 days of the campaign, Either the presidential or vice presidential candidate on, on, from both sides was, was in the state every day, like the last nine days of the election. Um, and the turnout was something like 75% of eligible voters. Um, that's only been exceeded by one state ever, which is Minnesota, uh, which happened that year and, and one or two other cycles. So uh, a lot of people think we could have a higher turnout this time around. Um, just the level of activity and targeting we're going to get, the level of passion and bitterness, um, all the indicators are kind of pointing in the same direction. But it's also kind of a cautionary note um, with respect to the truism that higher turnout is always necessarily going to help Democrats compared to Republicans, because that was the highest turnout we've ever had. And that was a race that was decided by less than four four-tenths of a percentage point. 11,000 11, votes, something like that. So, um, or was it five? Yeah, 11,000. Yeah, 2,000 was 5,000 votes. This was 11,000 votes. So, you know, I'm kind of agnostic on, on the momentum question or who benefits from higher turnout. I mean, the safe bet would be Democrats because that's kind of historical. But, you know, there's a lot of people that have come out, that came up for Trump in 2016 that hadn't voted before. I think it's an open question. Um, I think we're going to get crazy turnout.
3: I think, you know, going back to the turnout question that we've seen how at least one thing that I learned um, just from the Supreme Court race this past April is that there were 200,000 more new voters and the majority of them, I think it was like 155,000 of them went towards um, Hagedorn. And so that doesn't always mean that higher turnout equals a particular election. I think that was shown in that April election.
1: So looking at the the time frame, Charles, I wanna ask you about sort of the role that polls play throughout uh the next what, 14 months, is that where we're at now? <laughs> um cause I, I, I know, you know, we, we get sort of made fun of sometimes. Journalists sort of watch the the poll release breathlessly and there's a little bit of theater to it, it's all very exciting. We can't good theater. <laughs> good theater. <laughs> um what what should journalists be looking for in polls right now, and what should camp- how should campaigns use sure. polls right now, this far out?
0: Sure. Um, well, there are two things. The The first thing to say is that this is a long haul. We're in the middle of the second inning, and it's a long ways to the bottom of the ninth. And you could even make the argument that we're playing a doubleheader. <laughs> We've got to get through the primaries first before we get to the general. So, and I, I really mean this, it's not just rhetoric, that the purpose of polling today is not to make a prediction of the outcome. There's a lot of stress in the national media that the relationship between polls today and the final outcome is very weak. And that's absolutely true. But so is the score in the middle of the second and the final out of the game. And if you want to see who's Which team is doing well and which is slumping and who's rallying? I think that is one of the purposes of watching it now. The other is what coalitions are forming behind which candidates. And right now we have a split attention span because, on the one hand, we're all looking at the Democratic primary race, which is its own set of actors and and groups. And, of course, we're looking ahead to that player to be named later as the nominee for the Democrats versus the known uh, reigning World Series champion. So we have to pay attention to those things. Campaigns will do things that are a little bit, not even a little bit, substantially different than what public polling will do and what I specifically will do, and that's message testing trying out arguments on voters to see how they respond. You know, would you support someone who proposes doing thus or such to medical care? We don't do that because that kind of message testing is very specific to the strategies of campaigns. And, you know, I'm not trying to replicate what a campaign does. So we'll ask what you think should be done about health care. But we won't provide the positive argument for healthcare for all or the negative argument about socialized medicine. We'll leave that to the folks in the the parties in the campaigns to do. So it means that there is a difference in what you will see in my or anyone else's public polling and what the campaigns are doing inside to figure out what's working for them and what's not. Uh, the last thing is, I'm going to cross my fingers and hope that because we're a competitive state and likely, it's not just that we're competitive here, but also close to the tipping point in the electoral college. It's the combination of those two things: of a very close race internally, but if you go back to 2016, Trump could have lost Pennsylvania and Michigan and still won the presidency with us, and most people think we're still very close to that tipping point. So that's really critical. I hope that we will get other pollsters, national pollsters coming in and giving us a wider range of polling information. One of the sad things has been the decline of the diversity of polls going on in the state. And I hope because of our position, uh, there will be uh, additional polling taking place. So you don't have to listen to me. You can look at three or four other pollsters also coming at the race from whatever questions they ask and so on.
1: Um, I trust that everyone sitting here probably paid attention to the most recent Marquette poll release a little bit. Uh, Craig, I know you did. You wrote about it a little bit. Charles, I, I figured. <laughs> I, hope, I hope so. <laughs> uh, so you, you've started. This is kind of the, the beginning of the rest of the 2020 polling this is like the first benchmark, so I want to know from from each perspective here what were the what stood out to you and and what are you watching for in the the polls to come
2: um, well, one thing I, that stood out to me and I, and I wrote something on this was uh, the I think this was the most pessimistic we've ever seen voters about the economy going forward in the history of Charles's poll, which is seven years, right? Um, so it's interesting that the assessments of the economy are better under Trump than they were under Obama. That's if you ask people what, you know, how's the economy done over the past year, but if you ask them, how's the economy going to do over the next year? They're now suddenly more negative than they ever were under Obama. And then they were under the first two years under Trump. So that's kind of an interesting thing when you, Factor that in with the, what, what's happening with the economy. I don't know what that means or, or where it's headed, but it's a it's an interesting data point. Um, and I was also struck by Tony Evers' numbers. I wouldn't have guessed he would have a net approval rating of plus 20. He was 54% approval, 34% disapproval. Kind of approval across demographic groups, across regions of the state, and sort of an interesting contrast with Scott Walker, who people were so polarized over from the outset of his governorship, obviously Act 10, fuel that. Um, but he tur- he had a successful, until he lost, he had a successful, um, he made that work for him. Uh, he was polarizing, but he won his elections until until this last one, um, because he had a passionate base of support as well. And, he, and for a long time, he did well with independents. Um, so Tony Evers, people don't feel as strongly about Tony Evers, but they're also not as divided about Tony Evers. And right now, they're fairly positive about Tony Evers. So how long can he keep that up is an interesting question.
1: Before I get to everyone else's takeaways, I wanted to, to jump on that economy question. Is there any historical or anecdotal evidence to suggest whether that's more of a problem for the governor or the president having a, a different party in each office?
0: I, I think there's almost no question that people don't see the governor as responsible for the national economy. Uh, now, whether or not presidents actually have tight control over the national economy is also debatable but the way we ask the question we don't say the wisconsin economy we ask about the economy and it's uh like the second or third question we ask so it's before they've been asked to think about uh the governor or wisconsin politics so i do think this is a national thing having said that here in the state you are already seeing the the state of the economy, manufacturing jobs in the state, which declined recently, uh, with uh, a certain amount of uh, credit uh, claiming and finger pointing going on, as you'd expect, and as we certainly saw in the um, governors in the in the um, past governor's race. If you go back to 2012, if I could just for a second, in the spring during the recall election, it was all about what a great economy. Which benefited a governor seeking to win in that race. And suddenly the rhetoric inverted for the fall, and isn't it a terrible economy under a Democratic president? So I think we are seeing a lot of that kind of spin. It inverted on both no. sides. On yeah. both sides, both yeah,
2: yeah. Just- Completely yes. reverse their economic yes. message. Hi-
0: Hypocrisy the, is totally bipartisan. From June <laughs> to November of 2012. Widespread and
4: open as well.
0: <laughs> it's a free and frank exchange <laughs> of ideas. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I think what um, I'm going to continue this economy conversation, because that's really what stood out to me. Um, That's something I've always, I think, been really interested in taking a look at if we're looking um, holistically at the whole state. And, you know, we want to talk about this urban and rural divide all the time. Um, And so I'm really fascinated and really interested in seeing how um, campaigns candidates are going to continue to try and message the economy to everyone, um, despite this urban and rural divide. How are people going to have an economic message that resonates with dairy? dairy farmers and fast food workers um, in, in maybe in the city of Milwaukee. And what does that look like for, for turnout? I think um, I always am really interested when people ask questions, uh, somebody asked me like, do people care about the economy as like an issue? Um, I think when I'm talking to people on doors and, um, if I like, bring up the economy, people are like, yeah, you know, it's a little bit more far removed from their day-to-day. People just want to, you know, have a living wage. People want to provide for their families. People want to have um, safety. People want to have, you know, o- the freedom and the ability to live a thriving, healthy life. And so people aren't always thinking in, like, more of the the terms of the economy. It's just like, can you survive on the wages that you're making? Do you have to have multiple jobs? Does that satisfy your needs to provide for your family? And so um, it's always really interesting. That's something I always kind of like follow is like this conversation around the economy. How is it being messaged in a way that's like not super wonky? Um, We're not talking about, you know, like using academic terms when at the end of the day people just want to provide. And so um, that's something I'll be looking forward to Um, in, in future polling and in future messaging, I think of candidates because I think people all the time want to have two different messages. I need to have a certain message in the city of Milwaukee, which is code for people of color, and I need to have another message for rural Wisconsin, which tends to be code for um, working-class white men. Um, but what does that look like if people feel, generally speaking, that they that the economy isn't working for them?
4: I think there, it's also a, a, the fact that going on with this economy question as well, it's a snapshot of sentiment at that point in time. And I'm, I'm very interested to see where that does move and much on the same point of how does that then get messaged and how different is that message going to be uh, based on which campaign and which candidates are speaking about it and also which election cycle is speaking about it. Cause I think those messages are going to change when you get past the primary and into the general as well, because it then it, the one thing that's very easy to do with a, with a sitting uh, the president is that you have a track record that you can point it and point it and poke it and poke it. Now understanding how this president likes to, Play on his phone a lot and get a lot of tweets out there. It's going to be interesting to see how much control he can have on that message and how that's either going to benefit him or hurt him when that comes down to the point.
0: Let me just add two things from the polling perspective. Uh, The one about your personal circumstances is actually really interesting. We ask a question each poll Are you and your family, how's your financial situation? Are you living comfortably, getting by, or struggling? and the living comfortably has slightly risen from the mid to upper 50s into the low 60s over the last year or two. Um, The struggling has remained a little below 10% and then about 20 to 25% in that sort of middle just getting by category. So we have seen a little bit of positive movement in that expression of Personal circumstances, but not a significant drop in the struggling category. So, the folks that are in that category, we haven't really seen a move. Now, we do have an exceptionally low unemployment rate, and that has been great for people to have jobs and, and is a big part of it. But the last point to make, and this goes to the question of what is going to happen with these expectations for the future, and I'll no doubt be controversial here in a small sense. Our economic growth since about 2010 or so has been remarkably stable. You know, we have averaged around 2% growth. You can have an argument about whether that's a sluggish recovery or a sustained good recovery or so on. Um, our growth uh, last year was a bit higher than it looks like it'll be this year, but we're still looking for something about 2% from most of um uh, the prophesiers, as my mother used to call them. Um, And so what we have not seen since the great recession of 2007 and 8 and the beginnings of the recovery in 2009 is we've really not seen dramatic change in the macro economy. And instead, we've seen an enormous amount of partisan projection about the economy so that Republicans who'd been pretty negative about the economy in 2016 became wildly enthusiastic in 2017. Democrats who'd been pretty positive about Obama's economy became very negative about virtually the same economy under President Trump. But part of the issue is we have not seen truly big variation, a 4% growth rate, or actually under Reagan briefly, we saw a 7% growth rate But we have also not seen the depths of recession uh, that we saw in the uh, late 2000s, uh, 2009. Uh, So I think whether the economy becomes a strong enough signal to really move people, either positively or negatively, or whether they're really being pushed through the partisan lens of, let me convince you it's a good economy or a bad economy, that very much remains to be seen over the next 14 months. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs.
1: I want to talk a little bit about consensus and motivation issues where there's a lot of support and how much uh, that really matters. I think there are three, I think that have sort of stood out to me over the course of Marquette polls that I've looked at. Um, Medicaid expansion, I think is in the seventies redistricting, nonpartisan redistricting in the high seventies uh, and universal background checks is at 80. Is that uh, redistricting Medicaid expansion? And yeah, um, so, three issues that are kind of in the 70s and 80s in terms of just general support for a, a particular position on those issues. And that particular position is not being pursued uh, at the state level and, and thus far not being pursued at, at the national level. How is it that an issue can have a lot of support uh, but not necessarily motivate action? Or um, does does it does, do those issues motivate voters? Is it just something that everyone agrees on but no one really cares to see any action on?
0: Well, I think the... The size of the public support for those things suggests these might be kind of low-hanging fruit to to do. Uh, Not only was background checks at 80 percent, a red flag law was at 81, but more importantly, in gun households, it was over 75 for both. When you move to an assault weapons ban, then it becomes more divided. And in gun households, maybe still surprisingly, about 50-50, um, but in uh, some other segments, uh, a more negative view of, of uh, uh, an assault weapons ban. But I think the point here is both the intensity of uh, opinion and, you know, people who are most committed to guns have a much more intense view of it. And we have not seen the translation of a massive 80 percent on one side into votes and the sense among elected officials that their reelection might be endangered by being on the wrong side of that 80 percent. There's also the divide within party or between the two parties that, um, you know, opinion is different among Republican constituents than it is among Democratic constituents. And that further makes it difficult for a Republican legislator to legislate. Slater, as well as an individual legislator, to shift positions on those issues. Um, I'm actually kind of struck by, to go back, way back, uh, probably before Jesse was born, um, to remember the Mothers Against Drunk Driving movement, because that became a very effective movement for a period of time in mobilizing legislation across the country to put new restrictions, new punitive measures on drunk driving. And it came in part because of the group that got behind it, moms, with really powerful stories of children lost to drunk drivers. I've not seen that emerge as a political Powerhouse over the guns issue, though we have certainly seen episodes, uh, you know, uh, following individual shootings where this starts to ramp up. But my point is, it really mattered back in those days that moms from across the state would show up at legislators' doors and were mad as hell. And I know that some of that's going on in the gun issue, but I, at least I haven't seen that same level of mobilization. Uh, having an effect on that issue in Although, particular, I mean there was a sense that guns played a role in the in the democratic
2: surge in the suburbs and the house races in two thousand and eighteen and as Charles noted, I mean guns is an example of of intensity really mattering. I mean people are surprised by the level of support among gun owners period and even among Republicans, gun owners for some some of these you know m- we might say modest restrictions on uh, in terms of um, age of purchase or high capacity magazines or, or background checks but you have um, you have a lot of intensity on the Republican side um, among people who oppose those moves And then you also have the geography of the issue you know when you talk about the house, I mean you look at the districts it you know particularly when the Republicans controlled the House, um, the districts, that Republicans came from uh, were districts where those measures were less popular. But one, you know, illustration of the intensity, because it's not just a story about the NRA, it's also a story about grassroots intensity of the issue. Um, uh, A group of researchers at UW-Madison did a, they do a lot of research on social media discourse, and they looked at, at the Twitter conversations that occurred after mass shootings over a period of several years in the U.S., and they measured the duration of communications on Twitter um, of when people were expressing their thoughts and prayers after a mass shooting, when people were expressing sentiment for gun control, and when people were expressing sentiment against gun control for gun rights. And the thoughts and prayers lasted a day or two, the gun control discourse lasted a week or two, and the gun rights discourse just kept going and, and would feed off the gun control discourse too, but it just, it had more legs. And, and that wasn't the NRA. That was just the intensity among people who feel really strongly against um, restrictions um, on firearms.
3: So I'm going to zoom out a little bit. I think um, the this idea of this disconnect of there being a certain public opinion, but yet it's not leading to action. I think when you have um, such gerrymandered districts, people um, people aren't Legislators aren't persuaded by public opinion if they're in super safe districts. Um, and so when there is a time when people felt that maps were more fair, there could be a groundswell of movements and activism and people may not have been in safe districts and, oh, I'm getting a hundred calls a day from constituents. I probably should listen to them. I may need to move to action. But if people are, we're, we're creating these maps in a certain way where people are in safer and safer districts, then that also means that, There may be whole groups and whole movements of people that want a change in the status quo, whatever the issue, whether it's gun reform or um, whatever the issue is. If people are in safe districts, people can choose not to listen to their own constituents, unfortunately, just because of how safe they're deemed because of how we cut the maps too.
4: I think it also comes down to the fact that you can be adamant on a poll how you want to discuss any of those three issues. Uh, and you can have an opinion on that, but it it may not be the strongest opinion that you're going to hold into your personal life. Um, legislators aren't going to listen to somebody if they're not going to come knock on the door. I mean, that's from the, from, from the state house to the, to, to the house of uh, of Congress. Um, you get a lot more action done if you have large groups of people going into offices, talking, knocking on doors. Mad's a perfect example of that. You look back in the eighties and nineties and you did have throngs of mothers coming into legislative offices and sitting down and talking. And for some of these issues, you don't see that passion by it. You see in some states and some other issues right now, uh, the, the, um, the anti-vax movement in California, you're seeing a lot of people hit offices inside there. But it's not making any focused action that's going to happen over there. I think you need to see, there needs to be that action in the face of the legislator to get them to start paying attention and saying they want to make a change on it. They don't hear it, they're not going to do anything.
3: I think people are trying though. Um, oh, like true. one one example, um, like the healthcare debate. Um, Adi Barkin, who is 35, was diagnosed with ALS just in the last couple years. Is literally fighting to his last last breath. He cornered Senator Jeff Flake. He said, "Be a hero." They did this whole "Be a hero" tour. Um, you know, the, there's this group, this National um, Center for Popular Democracy, had hundreds of immigrant families, you know, telling their stories. You had Adi, who whose health is seriously declining, saying, you know being this face of this healthcare movement and still we're not seeing change in some of these issues so I don't know if it's necessarily a lack of people talking about these things and making their stories heard I think there's a lack of pressure to actually do something I think on on the hands of the legislators too.
1: Uh, so we've, we've got a couple audience questions that, that touched on the subjects of, of race and gender, um, some harkening back to 2016 and talking about examples of, of race baiting and dog whistling in campaigns and wondering whether that turns voters on or off in Wisconsin. And another question about whether the race and gender of the Democratic candidate will have an impact on how they do in Wisconsin. So um, I just I'm going to ask it in a more open ended way in, in terms of just what roles race and gender may play in 2020.
0: I mean, we saw in the aftermath of 2016 in national polling uh, the importance of racial attitudes, often called racial resentment in the political science literature, um, as showing one of the highest correlations with vote, uh, and maybe more strikingly, if In some of these studies, people had been interviewed up to five years before the 2016 election about their racial attitudes, and those attitudes from far before the campaign structured their perceptions in the 2016 election, Uh, and to an extent that we had not seen in other recent elections. Uh, And this covers immigration as well as white and black issues and so on so there's certainly evidence that it's there and that it played a big role and I think is likely to play a role this time what we've seen in Wisconsin is when we use the same questions that the national polls have looked at with uh, racial resentment what we see is very little movement in attitudes among republicans Among independents, a shift to the left, to a less racial resentment attitude. And among Democrats, a bit more of a shift to the left on that issue. So the structure of attitudes have shifted to uh, a more egalitarian, less racial resentment position, but it has come more from folks in the middle and on the left moving more. And that also matches very well with what national data have shown over the last few years uh, on these, again, same measures. So certainly an issue, and then it all gets tied up with mobilization, you know, uh, this notion about demobilization or pressure not to vote and things like that, uh, and an issue that really motivates uh, many votes.
2: I mean, it's really hard to draw conclusions about presidential elections because we have so few cases, and and on the one hand, like I mean, no one's done better in Wisconsin at the presidential level than Barack Obama in decades. Um, I mean, he's an outlier, I mean, for Democrats. I mean, he's just, he totally overperformed in Wisconsin. Um, And, you know, one of the interesting contrasts when you go back to 12 and 08 is the, the dramatic levels in the white vote um, I guess this is true in every cycle, but I just remember the numbers from the Obama races state by state. I mean, where he's winning the white vote by fifth, with, he's getting 50% or more of the white vote in the upper Midwest and in the Northeast, and he's getting 10 or 15% in the Deep South. Um, I mean, those are huge differences. And so he overperformed in Wisconsin, um, you know, and then obviously a lot of people concluded from 2016 that it was a liability, that gender was a liability for Hillary Clinton. Um, it's hard to separate, you know, in both cases, um, you know, did did Obama's success, was that just a tribute to his political attributes and positives, uh, as a, or, or in less of a story about race, or was it a story about race? Was Hillary Clinton's problems in places like Wisconsin a story about gender or a or a story about her particular liabilities and it's it's hard to disentangle all that.
3: Yeah, I think um we're living in such interesting, t- I'm going to say interesting times um, <laughs> that are very different. I-, I used to joke around. I was like, everything I know about politics was thrown out the window in 2016. Um, but I feel like we're living in such interesting times with like different social movements that are starting to be at the intersection and start to be in, in mainstream discourse and dialogue and in debates now. Um, you We're living in the-, the era of the Me Too movement. We're seeing a rise in in white nationalism and we're seeing, um, you know, wherever people fall on on those issues those issues are being front and center and I think it's less I think sometimes we in the past we were having conversations of oh well Barack Obama was black so obviously that's why black voters voted for him um which is incredibly disrespectful wrong offensive in all sorts of ways um and and but I'm, I'm relieved to see that I feel like we're not having those types of conversations of like oh well black people they're just going to vote for Cory Booker or Kamala Harris um I think people want to see um where candidates stand on those issues and on those movements um, that in a, in a time where we're so polarized racially um, in, in gender. And, but I don't think it's so much of, well, I'm going to vote for a woman president because that is important to me. I think people want to see who are the best candidates on those issues, but that may end up being a woman because of their lived experience, or that may end up being a person of color because of how they're able to talk about conversations um, and being able to have um, their lived experience as well. But it's also interesting, we're seeing... um, Vice President Joe Biden being able to get a lot of black support, and a lot of people think that it's due to Obama's legacy. And so I think it's not its not as simple as to say, um, and I, I'm not trying to imply that this, that's how the question was worded, but I think just it made me think of past conversations um, where people were like, oh, women are going to vote for Hillary Clinton because she's a woman. And that was not true. Or black people are going to vote for Obama. And so obviously, whatever is attached to his legacy, that's what we're going to vote for. And so I think it's a, lot, a little bit more complicated than that. But I think what's at the root of it is is these two major intersections um, of of race and gender and how they're playing out and who is able to speak the best to those issues and how we're actually moving um, the ball forward on that.
4: I'm very wholeheartedly agreeing with what you had to say. I think a lot of it comes down to, especially on the Democrat side of the aisle right now, um, it isn't necessarily who that candidate is, but it is exactly how are they going to speak to a larger Coalition of voters and be able to bring as many people under their own umbrella as they possibly can. And one of the things that was brilliant about President Obama is that he could make these giant umbrellas that could get as many people as possible under them. I mean, one of the most brilliant campaigners in the history of this nation. And it was because of the way that he could talk to voters and make it seem personal about the issues that they cared about. And I think you're going to need, you're seeing a new generation of candidates that are very similar or attempting to be similar to how. President Obama spoke to voters, and you're seeing that happen on on these smaller, you know, person-to-person conversation pieces that you see. I think that's where we'll continue to go. I
1: think we've got time for maybe a couple more. Um, I want to direct sort of a strategy-based question to the the two political operatives here at the end of the table. Um, and, and this is Reformed. A, uh, <laughs> This is this is an audience question. Um, do you think uh, uh, Democrats will be more advantaged by a, a more moderate candidate or a more left progressive liberal leaning candidate in Wisconsin door doesn't matter.
4: <laughs> Man, I, that's tough. I'm, I, I think it's difficult to to say. I mean, if you look, if you look at 18, um, I think Tony was, Governor Evers was, is, kind of a middle of the road guy and he's, it's easier to kind of jump onto a, a onto a follow him, uh, methodology. I think if there was, if Bernie was to win and, and he very much might win the primary here in, in Wisconsin, I think, uh, it it doesn't necessarily mean that that's how the election is going to go nationwide afterwards. It's a little difficult. We have a very uh, interesting electorate that is very issue based in how they vote. And I think uh, I'd say put whoever you want up. It's going to be, it's going to be anybody versus Trump is going to be an interesting race in 2020. And it's going to be a huge turnout race and a huge grassroots effort on both sides of the aisle. Um, Personally, I'd want them to put the least possible person up, but that's just because of my political affiliations. Um, I, it, I, I don't know if there's a, a correct answer there. I don't know if if, if being more moderate is going to help or being further to the left is going to help uh, in in the in the, the cycle of 2020.
3: This question haunts me. <laughs> um, I literally had a conversation with a friend this morning. We were watching TV, and this was like a debate that we had. Is I feel like we're living in a time um, where people or or some Democrats are like, do we want to win or do we want to just like dig our heels in and like absolutely be as progressive as possible and stick to our guns? And I think we're, we're seeing these conversations play out and they're, they're difficult and people are starting to reconcile. Um, you know, there are some candidates that I've, I know some friends and, There may be a candidate or two that I'm like it's going to be very hard for me to vote for them if they get out of the primary, Um, but at the same time, there is also a certain privilege in that, and I think there's a lot of deeper conversations that are happening. Um, I'm seeing less of like the Bernie or Bust type of conversations, um, which I think is encouraging because I want everyone to vote no matter what, um, and like let's just not be childish of oh my candidate didn't get through the primary, I'm just gonna sit out completely. Um, So that's encouraging when it comes to voter turnout, Um, but at the same time, I think people are trying to figure out how do we make sure that our values and our issues that are so deeply tied to us personally are being talked about and we're not compromising that while also there are some real serious atrocities happening in this current administration and in the world that we're living in there There feels like the sense of urgency to immediately stop it. Um, but at the same time, what does that mean um for Democrats? So I, I definitely feel that there's a big shift. I don't know the answer. I don't even know the answer myself of like me personally. I think um it's 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 hard, but I think it's worth being able to continue to have these tough conversations um on on both sides of the aisle and in amongst um, parties because I think, at the end of the day, what what's really the point if we're electing someone for, you know, well, anybody but Trump, right? Well, if that person can can be harmful in other areas, um, but maybe is seen as the lesser of two evils, but is still harmful to different communities, what does that also mean for voters too? And I think it's just really complicated. And, and the only good silver lining is I feel like we have enough time to continue to have these conversations. Um, but those are some of the things I'm seeing starting to play out even in my personal circles too.
1: Well, to, to close us out, uh, I'm going to ask Craig and Charles, what are the, the narratives you're watching for? What are the issues you're expecting to crop up between now and the election? And Angela and Nathan, uh, what, what do your sides need to do to, to win Wisconsin in 2020?
0: So I think there's a transition that every presidential election goes through between the nomination contest that is dominated by intense partisans who are paying a lot of attention and are passionate about particular issues. And it's easy to cast it in a further to the left needing to come to the center or in a Republican primary further to the right and needing to come to the center. And they're certainly part of that. But I also think it's more about do you have a message that you can say day after day after day and that works for you. And I, I don't know that I think this was especially left or right, but in the fall of 2018, talking about covering people with pre-existing conditions was a powerful healthcare message that worked across the aisle and in our polling data also showed... Boy, there was a consensus on that issue. If you had said, I will defend Obamacare to the last breath, that would not have been as an effective message. But focusing on that one element that really worked well as a message about health care, I thought was a good example of a really effective message. Um, You know, you can forgive a lot of apparent problems with your candidate if they're able to come out and tell a story that makes sense to a lot of voters. And um, you know we're probably gonna be close to a 50-50 race. And the question is, does it tilt a little bit one way or another, or conceivably a lot one way? Uh, but I think a lot of that has to do with that message. Uh, President Trump found messages that resonated with a critical part of the electorate here in 2016 and by all accounts, still registers well with a lot of those voters. And the challenge for the Democrats is to find a message that maybe doesn't convert a lot of those voters, because there's certainly a good argument that people are not likely to switch uh, from Trump, though maybe some will. I wouldn't discount that anybody will. But what kind of message gets those folks that stayed home last time or those folks that voted third party last time and that's a thank goodness I don't work in campaigns because I'm not responsible for crafting <laughs> that
4: message.
2: Um, just to pick one thing, you know, there's this, we live in a very polarized age, obviously, a very partisan time. And there's this sort of running argument among people that are into politics about whether it's now true that there are no longer any swing voters and it's really all about base versus base and who mobilizes their vote more than the other side and that has implications obviously for the kind of candidate you would want to nominate if you believe that there aren't no swing voters and it's all about mobilization then that's an argument for nominating a democrat that fires up the base if you don't believe that that's an argument for maybe nominating somebody who can appeal more to those swing voters i i think there are still swing voters out there i just run into too many people now you know who a lot of people call themselves independent and a lot of them vote for the same party year after year, and a lot of them are really voting against the other party more than for their party. But I just talk to too many people who are uh, who feel like they're somewhere in between the two. And, and even though there are fewer swing voters today than there used to be, um, in a state that's being decided by a fraction, uh, there's plenty. There are plenty enough of them to make a difference. And so I'm um, there are more of them in some parts of the state than other parts of the state. Um, there are more ticket splitters in some parts of Wisconsin than other parts of Wisconsin. And so that's, I'm just really kind of fascinated by that dynamic and um, both in terms of the map and in terms of the kinds of voters that um, are persuadable. And, and with Trump, you have this extra dimension, which is that most of the people that are against Trump are really, really against Trump. And the people that approve of Trump, there is a core that really, really approve of him. But there's also this critical segment that sort of approves of him. And maybe they don't really like the Democrats, but they have reservations about Donald Trump. They don't necessarily like his rhetoric. They don't like his tweets. They are conflicted on different, you know, to varying degrees. And so that's a challenge for him because he's got, he needs to get a lot of people who don't like him Or who have reservations about his style, behavior, persona, rhetoric, whatever you wanna call it, uh, to vote for him, which is what happened in 2016. Can he do that again in 2020?
3: So the question was, what do we need to to do? Um, I feel like it's just been a theme between the two of us. We're gonna agree (laughs) on the same
4: answer here. (laughs) Uh,
3: It's gonna be, it, it needs to be just engagement with everyone. It needs to be early. It needs to be a year round engagement. I think um, Democrats learned a valuable lesson about what happened in Milwaukee and what happened in Wisconsin uh, when you don't come and campaign. Um, Even for like us specifically, we had our first presidential candidate come pay us a visit in March Um, this this past March. And so I think people are starting to not take that for granted, understand that you do need to step foot in this state and talk to people. Um, People want to be heard. People want to have their issues heard. People want to hear their issues talked about. If people aren't Um, If people are struggling in whatever way, but their issues aren't being talked about or reflected in mainstream narratives or in the debates, that's also going to turn people off. And so I think it's going to come down to engagement um, to as many people as possible, as early as possible, and in a very authentic way. Like People need to find a way to relate to voters. That's why Obama was so popular. He was able to relate to people in all sorts of different ways um, and, and have this inspiring hope and change, not necessarily saying we need to have a hope and change type of message again, but people do need to feel inspired because there was a lack of just, um, excitement and enthusiasm and people just need to be engaged and it doesn't work if it happens in October, um, of next year, it doesn't happen, uh, necessarily if it's in September or even over the summer, people are starting to have these conversations now. And if there's so much buzz around it, I think people need to find ways to kind of capitalize and continue to, um, to engage in a meaningful way in a way where voters feel heard.
4: I think engagement is probably the perfect word for, for both sides of the aisle. I think one of the bigger things that um, are going to happen, you're going to see continued mobilization like it is right now. You've got both state parties have already got full staffs. Yep. That usually doesn't happen for almost Once. until February or March of the, of the actual mm-hmm. election year. Both realize that this is going to come down to every door knocked, every phone call made, mm-hmm. every person who needs a ride to the polls is going to get away there. And I think both sides of the, uh, of the aisle are, are very adamant about making sure that their mobilization activities are what is going to take place to get as many people as possible.
1: Thank you all uh, for, for being here. Thank you all for the great questions. And...
4: Very nice. Good. <laughs> Just like the girls I like to meet. And since my heart still likes to be, I'm coming home.
1: Thank you for listening to Wedge Issues. Our theme music is Oh Wisconsin by Loxley. Our new episodes come out on Fridays, so make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts so you can stay up to date. If you have feedback or suggestions for me, you can find me on Twitter at jessieopie or you can email me at j-o-p-o-i-e-n at madison.com. And if you like Wedge Issues and you like the Cap Times, we've got a whole host of other podcasts you can check out, like Live from the Cap Times Idea Fest, The Corner Table, and The Mad Splanners. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>